This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. It was a little bit of a surprise yesterday. Donald Trump Jr. released an email chain showing his attempt to get potentially damaging information on Hillary Clinton and the presidential campaign. There's a lot of questions, but the first question is, why would he do that? Well, joining us is a political pundit from the Upstream Strategy Group. Michael Diamond joins us on CHML. Michael, thank you for taking time on this steamy afternoon. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Now, let's uh, okay. The, let's start off the top. The first question, why would Donald Trump Jr. release these emails? You know, I guess he was in a situation where he was damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it's a nice contrast for him. You have Hillary Clinton, who has deleted and hid thousands and thousands of emails, and Donald Trump Jr., who, unlike his father, who hides a lot of things, is coming out and trying to be transparent here uh, to, uh, you know, rip the bandaid off in one fell swoop and uh, maybe either try and contain the story or just prove that this isn't, in his mind, uh, such a big deal. Now, Donald Trump was uh, stated yesterday, he sent a release saying, my son is a high-quality person and I applaud his transparency. Uh, What did you think when you saw that uh, quote from the president? Well, you know, it's nice that the president applauds transparency and perhaps it's time that he uh, follows his son's lead and releases some of the information that uh, members of the public have been asking of him. Now, I'm, I, I'm wondering, because this all started, uh, or the emails showed Trump con- uh, talking to a music publicist who wanted to meet uh, with a lawyer from Moscow. The publicist described the lawyer as a Russian government attorney who had, quote-unquote, dirt on Hillary Clinton, part of Russia, and its government support for Mr. Trump. Uh, all last night on CNN, all the experts, all the people were saying, why would you even agree to have a meeting with a foreign nation about what's going on internally? What do you think about that? So there's two things here. One, the meeting to get the information that was negative to Hillary Clinton is something that any campaign would have wanted to get, but they may have not taken a meeting. But the fact is, when you have reason to believe or proof or, you know, being told quite openly that this is a foreign actor, that's where it goes from being, you know, something that members of the public might think is greasy, but at the end of the day, politics is politics, to becoming a, uh, you know, problem un, uh, under the law. So the Trump campaign and the, the Trump family would like to say, you know, this is what anyone would have done. Uh, it's not illegal. But I think the real problem is here, you know, most politicians, Chelsea Clinton, Chelsea Clinton was born. Her parents, her father had already been a candidate in many elections. She grew up around us. So she wouldn't have been so naive to have done this. For Donald Trump Jr., he didn't grow up in politics. He grew up, you know, in, in business and around his parents who were, uh, you know, sort of bridged business and celebrity. And uh, for him, this was his first campaign that he was ever involved in. So for him, it was probably, you know, what you'd expect to see in a movie like um, Primary Colors or that one, um, The Eyes of March that came out a few years ago. It's not actually like that. Politics isn't actually like that. Ask anyone who's been involved in campaigns. But to someone on the outside, I can see why they may have thought that and thought this was a great opportunity for the campaign. It's interesting. Uh, earlier today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said he was surprised that he's facing controversy. Basically, he said... What's the problem here? Either he's really playing his cards close to his his vest, or maybe the Russians don't think this is a problem. It's not a problem for them. You know, what was their goal here? Was it to uh, just defeat Hillary Clinton, who they thought was going to be a a harsher... uh opponent of uh, the Putin regime, or was it to not just do that, but to cause doubt in American democracy? I mean, they they may very well be accomplishing their goals uh, time and again on this. Now, I'm wondering, uh, as we get into this, uh, the vice presidential candidate, the nominee that was uh, uh, Tim Kaine, who uh, was running uh, as the vice presidential candidate on the ticket with Hillary Clinton, used the term yesterday at a news conference, he used the term 
treason or treasonous are has this now crossed the line that this is now getting into really dangerous ground for the president oh absolutely i mean there's there's a lot of smoke here and if uh, meat uh, if, if there's meat on the bones uh, ap- absolutely it will be it will be a problem it's going to be a problem uh, politically in the midterm elections uh, quite likely and if the republicans are to lose control there uh, you'll you'll start to see if there's there's actual uh, proof of high crimes and misdemeanors by the president uh, move towards uh, impeachment in the house and a eventually a trial in the Senate. It might be very hard to achieve that two-thirds uh, vote uh, needed in the Senate to remove someone on articles of impeachment, but uh, the, the distraction will cause to both the Republican Party, the president, and the country will be uh, very, very bad. You know, it's interesting how Speaker Paul Ryan was deflecting questions about the latest revelations today, basically saying it's important to get to the bottom of what happened. And I kind of wonder, like all of us, when are members of the Republican Party, the Congress, the Senate, what have you, are they now waking up to the fact that there is a real, if you would use the term, monster in the White House that is now getting really out of control? Well, you know, the problem for a lot of Republicans, and I count myself as a uh, Republican, if I was in the States, I would not have voted for Donald Trump. I would have voted for Evan McMullen. But any other scenario, I would have definitely voted for the Republican Party. Uh, but what you'll see is even some of the more honorable Republicans, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are people I have tremendous respect for, they ebb and flow when it comes to Donald Trump. So, you know, they, they get shocked and they get outraged and they put out a statement or they tweet something or they go on TV and denounce him. And then they're back on his side, and in absence of, and at some point, these people, you know, they're going to have to, uh, they're going to have to, uh, uh, you know, have uh, fish or cup bait there and uh, pick a side, and either they're going to stay on the side of the president, which they might very well think is unseemly, or go against what they think their party is at and uh, be a real opponent to the president, not just in times of, uh, you know, outrage and Twitter controversy when he says something that's appalling, but uh, throughout these uh, times. I'm interested in what you just said. Our guest is Michael Diamond. He's a political pundit from Upstream Strategy Group. You mentioned that if you were in the States, you would have voted for David McMullen. Evan or, McMullen. Evan McMullen. He, is, he, used, uh, he was the chief policy director for the Republican Conference, and he also uh, worked as an investment banker, a former CIA operations officer. I'm curious, why would you have voted for him as opposed to some of the other high-profile Republicans that were running? Well, sorry, and... Uh, that was uh, in the general election when he he wasn't a candidate for the Republican nomination. Had had I been you know voting in the Republican primary, my my top three choices were uh, uh, would have been Lindsey Graham, Jeb Bush, and John Kasich. And that's because you know unlike Donald Trump is a New York City liberal. When he considered running for president in uh, 2000, it was on liberal ideas, increased taxes on uh, on, on on billionaires. He was uh, for gun control. He was uh, he was he was uh, against uh, the pro life mantra of the Republican. Party uh, and for me, but what he still was against was against a robust foreign policy, and that's what I think is very important. And I think Lindsey Graham would have been a better candidate for president than Donald Trump. But when it came time to picking a president in November, the best option for any uh, national security Republican was Evan McMullen. In your contacts with your uh, your colleagues down in the states and what have you. Um, they may not say this publicly, but is there now kind of a groundswell of people saying? My God, what have we done by electing this man president? Oh, you know what? I've had a few conversations with uh, friends and you know just people I've gotten to know th- through this, uh, you know, through through uh, conferences and whatnot. And there, there's there's a general consensus: what has happened? Like, yikes! How, how has this ever happened? And uh, you know, a lot of jokes about how the Simpsons predicted the future, you know, 20 years ago, and uh, how, how on earth did this ever become reality?
You know, it's interesting, too. The president is pushing back against any reports of dysfunction in the administration. He wrote on Twitter earlier today that the White House is, quote, functioning perfectly, focused on health care and tax cuts and many other things. He we know watches television, but he said he has, quote, very little time for watching TV. I would say if he has very little time for watching TV. Then he's a pretty smart man, isn't he? Well, you know, or uh, is it just his Twitter time is getting in the way of his uh, television time? And, you know, he'll he'll tweet about, you know, Morning Joe's a classic example of Donald Trump and uh, Fox and Friends is another show that I'm fairly certain he watches, probably flips between those two. But he, uh, you know, Morning Joe, he'll talk about, he talks about how he doesn't watch them so much that it's impossible to believe that he doesn't actually watch them every day. Now, uh, put on your your pundit hat here, looking down the road, um, and this is kind of a loaded question. Um, we're less than a year into the Trump can- uh, presidency. The, the 100 days are passed. Will Donald Trump still be in the White House three years from now when the first of his uh, first mandate is up? Yeah, Donald Trump, look, unless he, he is to resign like Richard Nixon, he'll be, he'll be in the White House because it's very difficult to remove a president uh, through uh, uh, per impeachment proceedings. Uh, it would require a two-thirds uh, vote of uh, United States senators to do that. The uh, Senate will remain quite partisan, so it's unlikely, even if the Democrats get a sizable majority in the next election, that they'd be able to do that. And, and frankly, I think people who are wishing for that to happen have to look at what the long-term consequences of that are because the United States is a deeply divided country, and we saw that uh, the, the result of that was the election of Donald Trump. And that you know he may have not won a uh, majority of the popular vote, but he did quite well. It's still shocking how many votes he he actually didn't get. He didn't get more than Hillary Clinton. But there's a huge chunk of the country that finally looks that you know they got their guy in. They finally have power back in their own country where they felt like outsiders and prisoners for so long. And if he's removed by elites in Washington, that will only further the divide and their disenfranchisement with their own country, and that would have a really devastating long-term contact. So for those who dislike Donald Trump, the best way is to make sure that there's a robust and strong campaign against him in the next general election if he's to seek uh, re-election, perhaps a Republican primary challenge, but not to remove him through legal or procedural ways, because that will destroy a, uh, the credibility for many Americans to have in the democratic system. Michael Diamond, political pundit from Upstream Strategy Group. Thank you. You know, the uh, summertime is generally, it's dull for news, but with Donald Trump in the presidency, there's always something to talk about, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just have to read his Twitter account and uh, try not to laugh. <laughs> All right, Michael, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Michael Diamond, there you have a look at uh, Donald Trump and uh, Donald Trump Jr. and uh, his prediction that Trump will be in the White House uh, another three years from now when uh, the first uh, mandate is up, the first four years is up, and we'll see what happens. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's a lady, Madeline Parker. Uh, who um, a lot of people respond to this, and which is really good. She works for a company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she basically wrote an email to her co-workers saying, hey, team, I'm taking today and tomorrow to focus on my mental health. Hopefully I'll be back next week refreshed and 100%. Her boss replied, the CEO, I just wanted to personally thank you for sending emails like this. Every time you do, I use it as a reminder of the importance of using sick days for mental health. I can't believe this is not standard practice at all or 
organizations. So to comment on that and find out if maybe more people should be doing it is the CEO at Civic Action in Toronto, Savon Palvetsian, joins us. Savon, first of all, I'm surprised. It, well, I, I'm glad you're joining me, but the summertime, I kind of thought maybe you'd be out, I don't know, with the kids. That's right. Well, taking advantage of some good mental health, right? Absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> yes. It's coming. The, the vacation is coming, Ted. Uh, perfect. For sure. All right. So let's first of all talk about, uh, if people don't know, you were um, your group was tied in with a, a big um, study and a big, um, a big program involving mental health. Kind of take us through what you, uh, you found last year. That's right. So, so here at Civic Action, we try to pick some of those big city building issues that affect the people who live in Hamilton and the greater Toronto area. And one of the big issues we found was mental health in the workplace. Uh, one in two people in our labor force, Ted, has experienced a mental health issue. And, uh, and that's going to cost th- that region, the, the greater Hamilton and Toronto area, about $17 billion in lost productivity over the next 10 years. And so we put our heads together along with just a phenomenal group of champions from the private sector, including Bell, CN Rail, from government sector, uh, municipal leaders, the nonprofit sector, and came up with a new program called Minds Matter. And it's an online, free, confidential assessment that a, that a leader in an organization, no matter how big or how small, can take. It only takes three minutes, Ted, and it will allow that leader to have a new action plan, three quick actions they can take to get onto the on-ramp of doing more to support the mental health of their employees while they're at work. Uh, when we mentioned uh, that the CEO of this company basically said, well done, uh, were you surprised when you heard that? I loved it, Ted. That is exactly what it's going to take to reduce the stigma on one of the last frontiers that the war is waging, and that is in the workplace. Uh, you know, we, we know the statistics are out there that a huge percentage of people, 4 in 10 Canadians, would not tell their boss if they've had a mental health problem. The research will show us people are more confident and comfortable sharing news of cancer than they are about mental health. You know, it's it's interesting because I know that there have been people that have shared stuff on Facebook that I find a little uncomfortable just because they're saying, well, for example, with all due respect, you know, I'm going in for for treatment uh, or examination. I hope it's not cancer, things like that. And then apparently there are some experts that say uh, some social media users say they'd be fired if they brought up their mental health at work. So that's a little concerning as well. It is. That's exactly the problem, Ted, is we, we know that people are struggling, right? Back to our numbers, one in two people in the workplace has experienced a mental health issue. Where do we spend most of our waking hours? At work. And if we are not able to, to be authentically engaged as the individuals we are in the workplaces that, that, call, that we call home, then, then that's really going to have an impact on productivity in the workplace, on our relationships with coworkers, on our relationships to our own work, and, uh, and then the, the stress and anxiety that that then comes home with us. You know, they, they say that, that my generation, we're not smokers, we're, but that secondhand smoke is that anxiety that we bring home to the kids at the end of the night. This doesn't just stay in the workplace. Our mental health travels with us wherever we go. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned some of the numbers already, but um, Canadian workplaces, from what I understand, mental health issues cost workplaces, uh, and this is across the country, not just in the GTA uh, Hamilton region, $50 billion, with a B, $50 billion a year. I find that figure staggering. 
Isn't that incredible? But when you think about the number one reason on short-term leaves are mental health related, you could start to see that. You know, when we started at Civic Action to do this work uh, just over two years ago now, we went and met with the heads of, of professional accounting firms, of financial institutions, and said, you know, how big is this topic? Is this on your radar screen? You know what? It was on the top of the radar screens of so many of those leaders. But where we're not yet seeing, and that's why this email that goes absolutely viral, because the reaction, that's what made it go viral. Not that someone took time off to focus on their needs. We all do that. Why this went viral is the leader stepped into it and, and gave credit to, to Madeline for being brave enough to share. And, and saying we ought to be doing this across the board. And if it doesn't start with the leader, Ted, it just doesn't stick. Yeah, she actually uh, was saying uh, how she actually, and you mentioned the reaction is, is the story here, not what happened. Uh, the more people that come forward and say, I go through that too, obviously it, it takes one person to kind of set the ball rolling. And I would suggest that she and her CEO have really started the ball rolling. They have. And, you know, there was a follow-up a, a subsequent post that the CEO did after this went viral, right? And, and I don't think this guy, Ben is his name, I don't think he had any idea that this was going to happen. But it, there's a really great line in his follow-up post. And he said, you know what, it's 2017. This is a knowledge economy. Our jobs require us to execute at peak mental performance. If we were athletes and we were injured, they'd put us on the bench to recover. Let's get rid of the idea that somehow the brain is different. Isn't that amazing? That's um, yeah. That's uh, the CEO of the company, uh, Ben uh, Ben Covington, uh, which now begs the uh, question: from an employer's standpoint, if somebody says, "You know what? I really need a mental health day," what type of legal ramifications are there? Where I mean, some sometimes in some cases they say, "Okay, you've been off three or four days. You have the cold or a flu. Give us a note." What about in this case where somebody says, I need a couple of days off for a mental health break? Right, right. Well, and you know what? Every company's different around their formal rules and processes and then what I'll call soft culture, right? So I can tell you here at my, at my organization, if, if we, have, we have a set amount of vacation that our staff are entitled to and a set amount of, vac- of sick days, but if someone is experiencing something and they need more time, that time is available, Right? So it's beyond the rules, and that's where, that's where culture starts to play a piece. It's interesting because at the provincial level of government, the Ministry of Labor is doing some new thinking and new work on sick leave. It is not necessarily the case that every employee everywhere is given the right to take time off when they're ill, paid leave, right, when they're ill. And, and, and that's, in this day and age, something that really does need to be taken a look at. But the other thing that they're looking at is the punitive nature of what I'll call the surveillance culture of asking your employees to get a doctor's note, right, when they're either off for a period of time or about to come back. And you think about that. Like, that, that's, that's about as punitive or surveillance as it gets to a grown-up to say, I don't trust what you've said. I need you to go and spend time and, in some cases, 20 bucks to have a medical professional vouch for where you were. And the province is saying, you know what, I'm not sure that's fair. And, and they may, we may see changes on that policy as well.
That's very interesting. That's a very uh, good point. Punitive. Uh, taking this now one step further, uh, we had a conversation uh, on the Mental Health Show Mind Matters a couple of months ago about uh, this brand new uh, program that, that you're doing that takes three minutes. Uh, how has the response been in the last little while uh, from hearing from businesses about, you know what, I took this three minute, uh, not a test, but I took this, uh, I took part in this exercise for three minutes and I was surprised. How's the reaction been? It's been phenomenal, Ted. We we launched this, it, so it's Minds Matter, um, which you can find on our website, civicaction.ca backslash Minds Matter. We started this in December, okay, of this year, and we already have almost 400 organizations across the region that are now on their way to doing more for mental health in their workplace than they were doing uh, before that. And in fact, in Hamilton, we were, did this great event with the Hamilton Hive um, late June to discuss the role on young professionals, because the millennials, as you know, have a different relationship to mental health and mental health expectations at work. Millennials are entering the workplace expecting to talk about it more freely, expecting to use more services that may or may not be there, and having a greater expectation of, of, of an open culture where stigma starts to fall to the side. And so it was a fascinating event that we did with Hamilton Hive. I'm thrilled that companies are coming out of the shadows and taking part in this journey, and Minds Matter is, is, a, is a phenomenal free tool to help get them on their way. Now I'm curious, when you mentioned uh, the expectations of dealing with mental health with the Millennials, I don't want to use the term young pe- younger people because I sound really old and crusty. <laughs> oh, wait, I am. Anyway, um, where do those expectations come from? Well, so this is, this is the biggest generation to walk the planet, right? Up to this point, it's been the boomers. And the millennial, the size of the millennial population is so big, they're going to be three quarters of the workplace by 2025. This is a generation that was raised without boundaries, right? They didn't need to sit in a university class to study. They could flip their cell phones open and, and, you know, go, go to Google and find out anything about anything at any point in time. They can connect with anyone in the world at any point in time. So this concept of boundaries and of barriers is not something that millennials have been raised to expect. And so when you have an open and a free, uh, socialization process and then enter the workplace which has cleared boundaries clear rules clear divides that's where you see the culture rift start to happen right so i think this is great news i love that the millennials with different expectations on transparency on supportive work culture of the value of connectedness i'm glad they're entering the workforce and taking on senior leadership positions in the years to come because i think there's a healthy dose of, of uh, expectation that they're bringing with them. Now, how about uh, there are those that say that the millennials, and this is a broad statement, a general statement, have a, a, an overwhelming sense of entitlement to everything and everybody. What do you, you think? know, it's, that cracks me up. It's often the boomers that say that, right? And, and I think about that because the boomers redefine society in their terms. And so I do, I giggle, I bet, the irony isn't lost. And I'm an exer, so I'm right smack in the middle and get to see, uh, you know, fault on both sides, as it were. That's certainly not been my expectation around unrealistic entitlement expectations with the millennials. Sure, everybody has a different relationship to work, to work-life balance, to family. That's a very individualistic thing, as unique as our fingerprints. But I will tell you this, and in my team here, we have a big cohort of millennials that I get to work with on a daily basis. Their passion, their curiosity, their commitment, their drive, 
And their desire for impact on a broader scale is addictive, is addictive. So does entitlement come with some of that? Maybe in some corners, maybe with some groups. But by and large, frankly, by far, the pros outweigh the cons. Excellent. Now, uh, we, before we wrap up again this this uh, conversation, we are in conversation, by the way, with the CEO of Civic Action, Zavon Palvetsian, talking about... Uh, Mental Health Days and, and how this uh, uh, Madeline uh, Parker, uh, who uh, works in uh, as a software developer from Ann Arbor, basically posted an email saying uh, uh, to her boss, I'm taking a mental health uh, day, a couple of days off. And the boss replied and saying, congratulations, thank you for doing that. If there are people driving around now and uh, maybe CEOs of companies or bosses or what have you who want to kind of think, you know what, it's time we got involved in the whole mental health wellness uh, issue, uh, direct them to to the website and tell them again how easy this test is. Sure thing, Ted. So absolutely. In fact, 42% of business leaders say, I want to do something. I don't know where to start. And and that's what we can do with Minds Matter. So if they go to our website, civicaction.ca backslash Minds Matter, or click on the link for mental health, it'll take you to the assessment. It's 12 questions. It's three minutes. It's confidential. And it's free. And at the end of those three minutes to your email, you'll get a list of three actions that you can take starting today. And if you need help doing those actions, there's a link to resources that are available out there that we also send to you so that we can neutralize the excuses in getting you on that on-ramp. And uh, once they're on the on-ramp, um, I know there's things that you're probably working on, but maybe you can divulge some of them. What's, uh, what's down the road, so to speak, in the next six months or a year as far as mental health and civic action? Well, what we're capturing right now are the stories and the testimonials of organizations that have started to get on the, on the path. And some of the unique hurdles that they've faced, maybe because they're in the manufacturing world and their shift work is different, maybe because they're in a financial services world and they have a team that travels all the time. So the nuance that sits behind different workplaces, there's some powerful stories, powerful hints and tips, and powerful testimonials that we're now pulling out. We're going to add that flavor to the Minds Matter program so that as you come back to get these tips and hints, again, all of which is free, um, you will be able to have fresh content there that's applicable and maybe some sister peer organizations that you can reach out to to help each other along this journey. Excellent. Interesting to see how this unfolds. Uh, Savon Pavetsian, the CEO at Civic Action, thank you for taking the time to join us. Enjoy what you will uh, have as far as a summer break, and, and we'll stay in touch and, and see how this thing unfolds in the fall. Thank you, Ted. It's always great to spend time with you. Have uh, a great rest of the week. You too. Savon Palvetsian, as we mentioned, from a C, uh, the CEO for, from Civic Action. Uh, I'm just wondering for people out there, what is your company doing as far as mental health? If you wanted to take one or two mental health days and tell your boss, this is what I'm doing, what would the response be? Ask yourself that question. Ask your boss what that question would be. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've been talking about this a lot on CHML News. You heard the uh, breaking news earlier today. An accused killer from Hamilton who may have posted cryptic messages online about turning himself into police has been arrested in Texas. Waterloo Regional Police issued a Canada-wide warrant for Agar Hassan on a charge of second-degree murder after the body of his ex-girlfriend Melinda Vasily was found in Kitchener on April 28th. They confirmed the arrest in a tweet this morning. It comes two days after a person claiming to be Hassan posted messages on Instagram hinting he may turn himself in 
including one he sent on Monday night that he says he hopes justice is served. To talk for the next little while about that and the use of social media in a case like this is uh, our next guest. He is a registered uh, social worker. Uh, Timothy Gordon joins us on CHML. Timothy, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really well, thanks. Great show today, by the way. Thank you very much. Now, let's uh, first of all talk about this. The Maybe the first uh, tweet that was sent on this a long time ago was when the crime allegedly happened. He crossed the border and he sent a tweet of uh, something along the lines of, I will turn myself in at some point. Uh, they thought that it was uh, sent in uh, Tennessee. So kind of t- uh, take us through, why would somebody do this? Well, it's a really interesting, I think, uh, profile if you look at what he's posted on social media. Uh, It seems to me, and I'm just inferring based on what I've read that he's posted on social media and what he's posted on Reddit and other places, that it seems like what he's doing is he's trying to address the court of public opinion. Um, This has been a debated topic in the media. People have suspected that it was a targeted attack, that it could have been a stranger, that it was a terrorist attack, perhaps. Um, an act of terrorism. And, and it seems that Hassan is, is responding to these things, um, to, the, to the public discussion, using his own social media, and almost like he's trying to, uh, if I may reference his original Reddit post, um, tell, quote, his side of the story, which is, a, which is a pretty interesting way of interacting with this situation. Um, I mean, you know, if we go back to, let's say, you know, the 70s or other uh, criminals who have, uh, who have uh, done crimes that have received media attention, they themselves have actually not had these kinds of outlets and have written letters to the media and other sort of sensationalist things. I'm wondering, um, how much would his lawyer now take this and say, you know what, as you say, kind of telling his side of the story, uh, maybe his lawyer would say, see, he is showing remorse and he basically uh, does want to uh, end this. Legally, I don't know if you can speak to this, but but how much credence would that have? Yeah, well, uh, legally, I don't know how much I, I could speak to that, but let me address one of those angles that you just talked about right there that I think is really interesting from a psychosocial perspective. Go ahead. Um, and that we do get asked to do assessment for as social workers when it comes to working with people who are in these situations, um, uh, who've uh, done these criminal uh, offenses, it almost seems like he's aware of how he's being portrayed in the media. And so he wants to show his own innocence. Um, So from a legal perspective, I I don't know what that would mean. But what's really interesting is you have the media giving a, a set of facts this, uh, this young woman was found dead in her apartment. Um, they don't know who the, uh, who the killer is. And then as more information comes out in the media, more inferences are made. And here he is saying, okay, I'm going to tell my side of the story. Now, again, not being a legal expert and being a social worker and being invested in this from a, let's say, psychological or social perspective of how this actually works for somebody, it's really interesting when you see him present a set of uh, facts that, let's say, try to show his own role in a different light. So he's saying, well, it was self-defense. I disclosed uh, an indiscretion that while we had been on a break, I was uh, sleeping with other women, that I was intimate with other women. And she became upset. 
and began attacking me. And I told her that if she didn't stop, that I, I would do something. And so it, it really appears like the function of his behavior in this situation is to almost explain his innocence, to explain, you know, look, this isn't, um, this isn't some faceless criminal who, who wasn't invested in this young woman. This is a person who, you know, she was uh, soon to be my fiance. I, I wouldn't have uh, premeditated an attack on this woman. You know, uh, I cared very deeply about her. I was trying to make my relationship work with her. And he even, um, I, I think that this is an interesting move on his part. He even took screenshots of their uh, private text conversations the night that he was on his way to her home and posted those as if to show, look, she wanted me to come over. And, and here I am being this caring partner. I'm, I'm on my way over there. So, so the story that I want to tell you is the story of somebody who did something that they regret. And I mean, we could make up our own. I have my own judgments about him saying this. But saying things like, you know, I needed some time away from what happened. Um, well, as we know, a young woman is now dead. Um, and interestingly enough, he also, in those early social media posts, talks about killing himself. He talks about suicide. Very interesting. Um, I'm wondering, and again, I, I, I'm asking some, some legal questions here, which Go I... Go for it. Go for it. Well, you know, I, and I know that there's things that, that you can't answer, but when you say that, that he posted, basically, you know, I admitted some things to her and she yeah. became enraged and what have you and here's what happened. Is that almost an admission of guilt right there? I That is totally outside of my scope of practice but it sounds like it is to me because it sounds like what he's saying is um, it, in, in very black and white and plain language uh, he does say that he did stab her. He does say that um, he called it an, an almost out of nowhere um, situation right where she had grabbed a knife and held it up to him, you know, uh, and he thought he was going to threaten him to leave. She had asked him to leave, and he does say very plainly, we're, we're talking about a situation here where somebody is very reactionary. We're talking about somebody who sounds like they're engaging in really impulsive behaviors. Um, and it also sounds like, even in his own reflections, it sounds like there's a lot of remorse. Now, I don't mean to infer, uh, you know, that this guy is, less guilty. Um, and I do think that it's interesting that the Canada-wide warrant was for second-degree murder. Um, so there does seem to be this, uh, if, if you will, if I may take a little bit of license here, you know, this crime yep. of passion sort yep. of narrative that's, that's happening here. Um, I'm In your practice as a registered social worker, mm -hmm. how much do you deal with things, uh, people that are dealing with things that they put on social media that have caused major problems in their lives, and why did I do this? I'm I'm kind of fascinated on, on what drives people to put stuff on social media and then realize afterwards, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I wish that you could see the look on my face right now. Uh, I, I have a, a big grin, and not because I derive some kind of sick pleasure from this, but because this is such a common issue. Um, you know, we live in an age where, for example, this young man, as an example, um, we all know that what he did is a crime and that uh, he and according to our laws, he should be in police custody, not, you know, quote, taking a break from things. And here he is now following, I, I suppose, following the media, following the public discussion about his case, about his behavior. And now, uh, you know, uh, let me give you an example. One of the last uh, things that he posted on Instagram, this image of a, uh, I believe it's a, a stock image of a, of a mannequin yep. 
sitting in a darkened room. It's a black and white photo. Mm-hmm. And it's a very somber image. And he talks about turning himself in. Um, so here we have a very, what is now common social behavior, which is we can uh, debate the court of public opinion online. We can go online and we can say uh, Justin Trudeau's tattoo is cultural appropriation, just like we can go online and say uh, the murder charge that I'm receiving is not at all what the media is purporting it to be or the police are telling you. What it is is it's you know a lover's quarrel that went bad and I feel deep remorse and I'm thinking about killing myself. So we now have these new ways of communicating and it is extremely common, albeit not as extreme as what's going on with this uh, young man, and tragically the death of this of this young woman. But um, what we see happening all the time is we see people engaging in all kinds of revenge behaviors, people speaking out against their employers, doing things that they regret that are based on an impulse. And I know that this isn't a, maybe a cheesy old saying, but this idea that once you put it out there, it can't be deleted, it can't be removed. And although, let's say, a tweet can be deleted or something can be, uh, uh, the moderators on Reddit can remove a post, we know that people can screen capture that image. We know that there's uh, websites uh, that actually um, take that information and uh, store it on their own servers so that it can be archived. And there's all kinds of really disturbing things that happen on the internet that are impulsive and reactionary. Um, you know, examples of this revenge pornography is an example is one of the big topics um, where I see some some offenders in my practice and, and talk to them about their impulsive behaviors. And so. This is super, super normal behavior, although not at this extreme level. But I was going to say then if it's, I don't want to use the term normal behavior, but are we, are you seeing more cases of, of people that are doing impulsive things and kind of yeah. trying to get to the, the root of what's causing them to be so impulsive? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And my, my use of the word normal is what I'm trying to say is that I see it a lot. I see it in all walks of life from people in all socioeconomic statuses of all ages, because the social media bug is everywhere. Everybody is, um, you know, and I say everybody, a large majority of the population are using uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, some form of, uh, of social media and, and participating uh, in these social interactions. And it's, it's also interesting because what you can type in a tweet in this moment, if, you know, if you and I, in this conversation that we're having right now, somebody is listening to the radio and they want to tweet at uh, AM 900 CHML and they want to say, you know, this, this social worker guy is, is downplaying this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this murderer's role, um, you know, they can do that rather impulsively and have that go out immediately. Um, we don't have these sorts of, let's call them delay circuits, built into our social interactions that used to be there. Fascinating. So so what you're saying then is, uh, it, if I can pick up... Go for it. So you're talking all ages, all all demographic groups, uh, all yeah. f- uh, financial groups, uh, you know, the I don't want to say lawyers, but high-end people making a lot of money and people that don't yeah. make a lot of money. Uh, this is what you see? Absolutely. I see it right across the board, all walks of life. Yeah. And, and imagine this, if you will. Technology does beautiful things for us, but it also allows us to play into our impulses as well, which is a pretty disturbing idea. And I guess the question then becomes, taking this one step further, how, do you, how does somebody control those impulses to stop putting stuff out on social media? Well, so this is, I think, something that's really straightforward, and it's been wisdom that's been in our culture for a really long time. 
but we don't really educate kids about it in the in the dominant uh, culture that we have right now. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it. But what we really ought to be helping people focus on, this is what I do in my practice, is rather than tell people they're not allowed to think a certain thing or not allowed to feel a certain way, instead what we do is help them to breathe in those thoughts, those feelings. Let me give you an example. People who go on angry tirades on the Internet, this is a really good example. We have people who... Uh, get a uh, everything from a proverbial slap on the wrist from their employer all the way up to uh, full-on unpaid suspensions with their employers because of their angry online behaviors. Because remember, employers are always watching. And so what we do is don't try to tell people you're not allowed to feel this way. You're not allowed to feel. It's not that you're not allowed to feel anger. It's that you need to learn how to roll with that punch. You need to learn how to show up to your anger. You need to learn how to identify your impulses and roll with them. Because I'm not any good at controlling my own impulses that show up for me, Ted. Honestly, you know, when, when I'm feeling a little bit draggy in the afternoon, and I want to reach for that next cup of coffee, you know, that impulse is going to be there. And that's always going to be rewarding. And so instead, it's about helping people to build that delay circuit into their everyday life. And if I can come back to this case, yep. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this type of behavior as time marches on. I don't think that this is going to be our last conversation either about somebody who takes to social media to... Um, you know, hold up an issue that really becomes rather controversial because social media has now become this new way of communicating um, where people can have a voice and have it put out there widespread and accessed by everybody, essentially, without any filter at all. That seems to be the key, right? No, no filter. I mean, I, no I, I mean, I kid a lot about myself not having a filter to my age. I don't care, but, uh, <laughs> but trust me, everybody I think at some point has posted something somewhere that they thought to themselves, "Oh crap, I shouldn't have done that." Absolutely, yeah, me, me included. Yes, and it's interesting though because when we go, when we balance between somebody that let's say does something that is wrong. Um, or something that is really uh, inappropriate. That's one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum that we have is that we can also, let's say, post things that may seem innocuous to us, things that seem might be perceived as offensive to other people. And I think that the name of the game, what we're rooting down to here is not so much focusing on what does the behavior look like, but really focusing on how does it work in a certain situation. And this is why I really wanted to focus on this idea about looking at impulse control and looking at you know, people sort of reacting to their emotions rather than thoughtfully slowing down and taking a moment to think about, like, well, what is this about for me? Has social media made your job, I don't want to say more difficult, uh, has social media made, made you busier now? Um, I, I wouldn't say busier, and I would definitely say more complicated. <laughs> Let me give you an example, if I can abuse your and your listeners' attention here for, yep. for a moment. Um, let's imagine somebody who is uh, in an intimate relationship. There's somebody that you love very deeply, and they do something wrong. Or you perceive that they've done something wrong, and the two of you have decided to split up. It's really hard to avoid that person, because now they're inextricably linked to you right across the board, whether it's... Um, things that show up on your uh, Facebook or Instagram uh, feeds. Um, there's going to be all kinds of ways that you can access them and information about them. Um, you can impulsively, you know, th I, this is a, a very common term used in social media. You can very impulsively creep on them, right? You can access um, information about them yep. 
um, just by looking up their name on Facebook or on Instagram. You know, you can see who they're dating now or if they went to the latest Jays game. Um, you can be an offender on the run from the law and somebody posts something about your case online and now you can get into a, a proverbial flame war with them, arguing with them, uh, arguing your case, uh, posting uh, rather controversial information like what's happened in this situation, all because of social media. And so it really complicates things because it makes it really hard for me as a helping professional to help people turn their attention away from that and focus on broadening their life and make their life bigger. When these triggers are everywhere, they're really hard to avoid. And it's also, it makes the job more complicated when we talk about those impulsive behaviors because it's so easy to just type in, you know, a couple words into your browser or searching up somebody's name. Wow. Fascinating yeah. look at social media and what will happen. Of course, uh, we'll find out when uh, the, while the arrest has been made, he will be brought back to, uh, to southern Ontario. And then uh, uh, this will all start and we'll be interested to see what his defense will be. This is we're talking about Agar Hassan arrested in police this morning. But uh, he did post some things on social media. Timothy Gordon, registered social worker. This is a fascinating look at the use of, of social media. And I'm glad that even you have admitted to doing some impulsive things on occasion opposing things that maybe you know and probably saying i shouldn't have done that thank you for that i appreciate that thank you so much ted it was awesome being on the show all right thanks very much have yourself a great day timothy gordon that's a you know you see so everybody does it everybody does it some of us more often than not we haven't learned but that's another story the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml